0: Chapter 10, verses 1-20 through 20. Verse 1 After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Burkett notes The Captain General of our salvation, Christ Jesus, having called, commissioned, and sent forth his twelve apostles as great commanders to subdue his native kingdom of Israel to himself, at the sixth chapter of this gospel. In this chapter, he sendeth after them a band of seventy auxiliary forces to aid and assist them. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy disciples, and sent them two and two before his face. Where note 1. The person commissioning and sending them forth, Christ himself. Thence learn, that none ought to take upon them the office of preaching or other ministerial functions in the church till they are unto called by Christ himself. The twelve apostles and seventy disciples had an immediate mission from Christ himself. All his ministers are now called immediately and receive their authority from Christ by the hands of the governors of his church. Note, two: the manner of their sending, two and two in a company, partly to make their message of more authority partly to testify their mutual consent in the doctrine they taught, and partly to comfort and encourage, to help and strengthen, to assist and support each other. In imitation of this example, the Jesuits send forth their emissaries by pair. Learn hence that the ministers of the gospel do stand in great need of mutual help and comfort, of the united assistance and encouragement of each other in the weighty duties of their calling and function. Our Savior, in the next verse, compares his ministers to harvest laborers, who are to help and assist one another, the strong endeavoring to strengthen the hands of the weak. But, Lord, what tears are sufficient to bewail the want of love and unity, yea, the prevalency of that envy and malignity, which is found too often among the ministers of the gospel, so that instead of going forth two by two, happy is he that is alone in a place. Well might Melanthon bless God when he lay a-dying... That he was going to a place where he should be freed from the implacable hatred of divines. This is, and ought to be, for a lamentation. Verse 2. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Burkett notes, Note here 1. That God's church is a harvest field. 2. That the ministers of God are laborers in his harvest, under God the Lord of the harvest. 3. That to God alone it doth belong to send forth laborers into his harvest, and none must thrust themselves in till God sends them forth. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. 4. That the number of faithful laborers is comparatively small and few. The scribes and Pharisees in the Jewish harvest field are many, yet, says Christ, the laborers are few. 5 that it is the church's duty to pray, and that, earnestly and incessantly, to God, the Lord of the harvest, to increase the number of faithful laborers, and to send forth more laborers into his harvest. Verses 3 and (coughs) 4. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. (coughs) Burkett notes, Our Savior, one, arms his disciples against the difficulties, dangers, and discouragements which they might meet with in the course of their ministry, by telling them that he sent them forth as lambs among wolves, thereby intimating that the enemies of the gospel have as great an inclination from their malicious nature to devour and destroy the ministers of Christ as wolves have from their natural temper to devour lambs. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Two. Our Savior directs them, in this their first expedition to preach the gospel, to commit themselves to the gracious care and good providence of God, both for provision and protection. Neither carry purse, nor script, nor staff, says St. Matthew, as if he had said, trust God with the care of your lives, rely upon his providence, both for protection and provision. Yet must we take notice that this was only a temporary command given to the disciples for this particular journey, which they were quickly to dispatch. For in the general, Christ allows his ministers as well as others to exercise a prudent and provident care of themselves and their families. And as it is the minister's duty to trust God in the use of prudential means for their maintenance, so it is the people's duty to take care of their minister's comfortable subsistence. The workman is worthy of his meat, says our Savior that is, of all necessary supplies. He is worthy of a comfortable subsistence, and, where it may be had, of an honorable maintenance. Verses 5 and 6. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. Burkett Notes. Here our blessed Savior directs his disciples how to manage themselves in the executing of their office. Into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. They must wish peace to the sons of peace, yea, to the enemies of peace also. And as their peace shall rest upon the one, so it shall return from the other. Peace be to this house is a fit salutation for them to use who were the disciples and ambassadors of the Prince of Peace, and very agreeable to the gospel they were to preach, which was a gospel of peace. And it was a prayer as well as a salutation. The disciples were to speak it not from the lip only, but from the heart also. Peace is the music which both men and angels are delighted with, and the Christian religion is the greatest promoter and preserver of it, that commands us to pray for peace, to follow after peace, to part with our coat and cloak, that is, our civil rights, for peace, and if it be possible, to live peaceably with all men. Observe too, as the injunction given by our Savior to his disciples to deliver a message of peace, first say, Peace be to this house. So the prediction of what should befall them in the delivery of this their message, their salutation, though it be peace, yet it will not find a welcome and entertainment with all persons, but only with the sons of peace. If the sons of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. Observe 3. An encouragement not to be afraid of delivering their message, though it wanted success. If your peace rests not, it shall return to you again. Learn 1. That as there was at the first preaching of the gospel, so there is, and always will be, some that are sons of peace, and others that are enemies unto peace. 2. That this peace will rest on none but those that are fit to receive it. 3. Though it doth not rest, yet it shall not be lost, but returned again to those that publish it. Ministers can but say, "Peace be to this house; they cannot make it rest there. We can offer terms of peace to a lost world, but cannot compel men to accept them, and if they finally refuse them, we shall be a sweet sabre unto God as well as in them that perish, as in them that are saved. Verses seven through twelve and in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labourer is worthy of his hire go not from house to house, and into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, each such things are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come near unto you. But into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not, go your way out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near unto you. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Burkett Notes Here our Savior gives his disciples sundry directions how to manage themselves in this expedition for preaching the gospel. He enjoins them, one, to observe the rules of decency in going from place to place, having entered a house to continue there not changing their lodging and going from house to house, thereby avoiding all show of lightness and inconstancy, and testifying all gravity and staidness in their behavior, this being a special mean to win authority to their person and ministry. Two, he gives them a power to work miracles for the confirming of the doctrine which they preached. Heal the sick that are therein. This was necessary partly to procure reverence to their persons, being poor and unlearned men, and partly to gain credit and authority to their doctrine. For the doctrine of faith in the Messiah, as now come and exhibited in the flesh, being a strange and new doctrine to the Jews, the truth and certainty of it was to be extraordinarily ratified and confirmed by working miracles, one sort of which was healing of diseases in an extraordinary manner. Observe three how Christ encourages his disciples against the want of success, he bids them denounce the judgment of God against such condemners of their doctrine by shaking off the dust of their feet, which action was emblematical, and signified that God, in like manner, would shake off them, and esteem them no better than the vilest dust. Learn hence, that those who despise the message that the ministers of the gospel bring, shall hereafter find the dust of their feet, and the ashes of their graves, to give a judicial testimony against them in the day of Christ. Wherever the word is preached, it is for testimony, either a testimony for or a testimony against a people. For if the dust of a minister's feet bear witness against a people, their sermons much more. Observe lastly, the dreadful judgment denounced by our Savior against the condemners of his disciples' doctrine. Verily it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Where note one, that there shall be a day of judgment, two, that in the day of judgment some sinners shall fare worse than others. three, that of all sinners, the condition of such shall be saddest on the day of judgment, who, living under the gospel, die after all in their impenitency and infidelity. It shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. Verses 13 to 15 (coughs) Woe to thee, Chorazin! Woe to thee, Bethesda! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. Burkett notes, These cities in Galilee, Chorazin, Bethesda, and Capernaum, having been the place where Christ preached and wrought his miracles, they have a woe denounced here against them for their contempt of Christ and the offers of his grace. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, etc. The higher a people rise under the means, the lower they fall, if they miscarry. They that have been nearest to conversion, being not converted, shall have the greatest condemnation when they are judged. Capernaum's sentence will exceed Sodom's for severity, because she excelled Sodom in the enjoyment of means and mercy. Observe here, 1. Capernaum's privilege enjoyed. She was lifted up to heaven that is, enjoyed privileges above all other places, namely, the presence, preaching, and miracles of our Savior. Observe, too, Capernaum's doom denounced, Thou shalt be thrust down to hell, that is, thy condition shall be sadder than those that never heard of a Savior, even Tyre and Sidon sodom and gomorrah those rude and barbarous nations out of the pale of the church shall be in an easier state and condition than those that have enjoyed gospel ordinances and church privileges but not improve them learn hence one that gospel ordinances enjoyed are a mighty honor and advancement to the poorest persons and obscurest places thou Capernaum, art exalted to heaven two the gospel ordinances and church privileges enjoyed but not improved provoke Almighty God to inflict the sorest judgment upon a people. Thou that are exalted to heaven shall be thrust down to hell. Verse 16. He that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. Burkett notes, here, our Savior encourages his ministers to faithfulness in their office by assuring them that he should reckon and esteem all the kindnesses shown to them as done unto himself. He that receiveth you, receiveth me. He that despiseth you, despiseth me. Where note that all the offices of love and respect, of kindness and charity, which we show to the ministers and members of Christ for his sake, Christ reckons it done unto himself. Note farther, that the contempt of the message and messengers of the gospel runs much higher than men are aware of. They think it no great matter to slight or neglect the messengers of Christ, but verily that contempt flies in the face and authority of Christ himself, who gave them their commission. Yea, in the very face of God the Father, who gave Christ his commission, and accordingly they're called God's mouth, Jeremiah fifteen nine. their message and their mission being both from him. Nay, Farther, the sin strikes at our own souls, and we are injurious to them as well as unto Christ. He that despiseth you despiseth me. Yet certainly no age was ever deeper drenched in the guilt of this sin than the present age is. Verses 17 and 18. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the 70 disciples returned to give Christ an account of the success of their expedition. They return as victors with joy and triumph, showing Christ the trophies of their conquest. Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. The weapons of their warfare were not carnal, but spiritual and mighty through Christ. The powers of darkness cannot stand, but must fall before the power of Christ. The devils are no match for Christ. No, not for the meanest of the ministers of Christ, who go forth in his name, armed with his authority and power. Observe too, Our Saviour's reply to the Seventy's disciples upon this occasion. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. A twofold interpretation is given of these words. 1. Some look upon them as a secret rebuke given by our Saviour to the Seventy for that excess of joy and mixture of vainglory which was found in them, upon account of these extraordinary gifts and ability of casting out devils and healing diseases which were conferred upon them. I beheld Satan, says Christ, falling like lightning from heaven, as if Christ had said, take heed of being puffed up with pride upon the account of those endowments which I have bestowed upon you. Remember Lucifer, the prince of pride, how he fell from heaven by his arrogancy, and labor you to ascend thither by humility. The words in this sense afford this instruction, that those whom Christ has bestowed the greatest measure of spiritual graces, ministerial gifts, and temporal blessings upon, ought to be very watchful against that hateful sin of pride, which has ruined and destroyed so many thousands of angels and men. Two, some understand this fall of Satan, not literally, but figuratively and mystically, of his ruin by the power of preaching of the gospel. As if Christ had said, I know that this is no vain boast of yours, no vaunt or brag of your value, that the devils are conquered by your courage. For when I first sent you forth to preach the gospel and armed you with divine power, I easily foresaw that the devil's kingdom would shake about his ears and that his power would be ruined by the power of the gospel. And that wherever you preached, Satan's strength and power would vanish like a flash of lightning, suddenly and irrecoverably. Learn hence that the powerful and efficacious preaching of the gospel is the special means ordained and appointed by Christ for the ruin and subversion of Satan's kingdom in the world. As the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, To them that believe and obey it, so it is the power of God unto destruction to Satan and all that fight under his banner against it. Verse 19 Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Burkett notes Our Lord, finding that his seventy ambassadors had managed their former commission so well, he here enlarged it adding thereunto a promise of divine protection. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents, and nothing shall hurt you. As if Christ had said, Go forth again in this armor of power with which I have girt you, and I warrant you sword-free and shot-free. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Neither strength nor stratagem shall overcome you. Neither the power, the presence, nor protection of God shall be wanting to any of Christ's ministers or members who go forth in his strength against the spiritual enemies of their salvation. As we have a promise of power in this text to enable us to resist the devil, so we have a promise of success elsewhere upon our resisting him. Resist the devil, and he will fly from you. St. James 4.7 Verse 20 Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. Burkett notes, in these words of our Savior, there's something corrective and something directive. The corrective part lies in the first words, wherein Christ checks the suspected excesses of their joy for victories gained over evil spirits. In this, rejoice not. That is, let not your hearts too much overflow with joy upon this occasion. The negative is not absolute, but comparative only. Christ does not forbid, but only qualifies and moderates their joy that the spirits are subject to you, that is, the devils. Where note, one, that though the evil angels by their fall have lost their happy condition, yet not their original constitution, their honor, but not their nature, they are spirits still. Two, the subjection of those evil spirits to the power of Christ is not free and professed, but an involuntary and imposed subjection, like that of a slave to his Lord, whether he will or no. Learn hence, one, that evil spirits are subject to the power of Christ, not only to his person, but to his ministerial power. Two, that it is a matter of great joy to see evil spirits brought into subjection by the power of Christ. To seeth evil spirits of pride and contention, of envy and malice, of error and falsehood, of jealousy and self-love, of animosity and division, not only chained, but changed. To see not only an unwilling subjection, But a subjection of the will to Christ is a matter of great joy and unspeakable rejoicing. The directive part of our Savior's words lies in the latter part of the verse. But rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There are no literal records in the court of heaven, no pen or ink, paper or parchment. But to be written in heaven is to have a title to eternal life and to be made met for the inheritance of the saints in light. Learn one that God has in heaven a book of life. A book written with the golden rays and beams of his own eternal love. Observe, too, that there are written names in this book. Three, that persons may know that their names are written in that book. Otherwise, they could not rejoice, for no man can rejoice in an unknown good. Four, that it is a greater matter of joy and rejoicing to know that our names are written in heaven than to have a power to cast out devils here on earth. A man may have power to cast forth devils out of others, and yet at the same time the devil may have power in and over himself. Therefore in this rejoice not that the devils are subject unto you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If you say, with what spectacle shall we read that at such a distance? Who will ascend up into heaven to see whether his name be written there? Or who can send a messenger thither to search the records? I answer, turn thy eyes inward. If the name of God be written in thy heart, thy name is certainly written in heaven. If you, in your daily actions, write out a copy of God's book, the Blessed Bible, here below, assure yourselves that the hand of God has written your names in his book above. That is, you shall certainly be saved.